Good morning, King's Cross. Friends and visitors, welcome to you. We're glad you're here. My name is Clint, one of the pastors of this church, and I just want to welcome you and tell you we're grateful that you've come to be with us this morning. I assume for many, this morning is and feels like a new beginning, new semester for plenty of college students. Welcome back to those students who are here. For some, it might feel like a new beginning in that you are perhaps looking for a new church and it's kind of the start of the fall. You got kids going back to school and you decided, you know what, let's go look and check out this particular church. As with all new beginnings, you're taking a new step because of an end goal. There's something you have in mind that is leading at the beginning to take this first step towards this end goal. Therefore, to live with wisdom, you must consider that end to know where and how to begin at the beginning of a journey. This morning, we're in the middle of Jesus' fifth discourse, just a few days from his gruesome execution on a Roman cross. He's addressing eternal judgment and realities because his disciples ask him a question about the end of time. So they ask the ultimate end question. Where's all of human history headed and what is it going to be like in that day? How do we know that day is coming and what is that day going to be? Christ is teaching in this private conversation with his disciples about the relationship between our earthly life and how it relates to the end, our eternal life. And he's instructed, as we've studied and we're in the middle of this discourse, he's instructed uh, with and offered great compassion and care, and yet at the same time, undeniably terrifying warnings of just judgment. And you get both when you study the Christ of Scripture. This mind-bending grace and mercy and compassion, and yet this bold proclamation of just judgment that he's not ashamed of nor bashful to talk about. He's talking to us, even in this text and in this, uh, these few chapters, about the ultimate end. And what he says is, for those who love him, there's an eternal joy that awaits, that a, a joy that is beyond our human comprehension, a joy that is exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think or imagine. But the ultimate end for those who do not love him is an eternal punishment, worse than we would dare to think. Now, in a culture where tolerance has been redefined as unconditional affirmation, detached from objective truth, this might seem like a weighty and at some level an arrogant thing to talk about with such clarity and conviction. It might seem unloving to talk about eternal judgment in our current moment. But friends, if we actually love God and we actually love people, then we must point those whom we love to the real dangers of eternal hell, that they might see the great glories and beauties of the eternal life offered in the grace and mercy of Christ. Love is honest. Love is honest not just here and now, but love is honest about the end. And love longs for people to experience eternal joy, not eternal torment. Charles Spurgeon, that great prince of preachers, says he is the true lover of men who faithfully warns them concerning the eternal woe that awaits the impenitent. While he who paints the miseries of hell as though they were but trifling is seeking to murder men's souls under the pretense of friendship. So if our compassionate King Jesus really is returning as a just judge to separate those who love him from those who don't, how should that impact our present life? How then should we live as we think about the end of things? Main point this morning, a right understanding of the end should lead to faith and faithfulness in the present. A right understanding of the end, where we're going, should lead to faith and faithfulness 
in the present. Two very penetrating questions this morning that are weighty that you ought to consider honestly and deeply. You're here. You might as well lean in and consider. Question number one, are you prepared for that day? Are you prepared for that day? Question number two, are you leveraging everything in light of that day? Are you prepared for that day? And are you leveraging everything in light of that day? Let's pray and ask for God's help. We'll ask and answer those two questions from the text. Father, we come to you through Christ Jesus, our resurrected and reigning Lord. The one who saw the crowds and saw they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and felt compassion. The one who promises to return as a just judge. The one who's full of more mercy and grace than any sinner in this room could out sin. The one who's full of just judgment that every sinner in this room should be concerned to not face. So help us by your spirit. Guide us into truth. Open up our eyes that we might see and behold beautiful things in your law. Open up our eyes that we might see the truth of our hearts. Open up our eyes that we might know the eternal destination awaiting us. Open up our eyes that we might know how to live this life here and now. In light of that day, there and then, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Question number one, are you prepared for that day? Now we're going to look. Uh, we read the second parable, two parables we're going to look at this morning. The first parable, Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 through 13, is a parable about wedding festivities. Now, I love weddings. Obviously, as a pastor, I've I looked at, I've been a part of, I've participated in all kinds of weddings in every possible seat in that wedding. I've been in a wedding, married to my bride. <laughs> I've sat just as a guest, I've, I've been a groomsman, a, a, a member, a family member or a friend supporting that person that I'm, I've been able to be a best man. I've been the pastor officiating the wedding. I love weddings and particularly love that moment where the doors fling open and the bride enters. And there's kind of that tension, like you want to look, everybody stands, you look at the bride, you see her coming and her beauty, and you want to look at the, the groom because you want to see what he's doing, seeing and doing as he looks at her. So you kind of look at the groom, you see if he's crying, you look back at her, and like the whole, the whole congregation's kind of back and forth, back and forth, anticipating what is he feeling even in this moment. I love weddings. Jesus loves to use weddings as an illustration, even to talk about his relationship with the church, and even here as we see to talk about the end of things, the judgment that is to come. This parable, uh, if you have kind of your heading in your Bible, it says about 10 virgins. Now, I don't want that to confuse you, that title. So what it's simply talking about is like a bridesmaid. So an unmarried person that's a part of the wedding party, a bridesmaid or an attendant, one who's uh, there for the wedding and there to celebrate the bride and the groom. They're unmarried members of the wedding party that serve in the celebration. And so we read in verse 1, Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins, or again, think bridesmaid, bridesmaids, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. Now, in this culture, you need to know wedding ceremonies, uh, ceremonies could last for days. One part of the ceremony is that the bridegroom would come to the bride's house to get the wedding party. And this would be after nightfall, so it would be after dark. Everybody would have individual lamps or torches that you would light with oil. And there, there would be this beautiful procession. So now the whole wedding party would leave from the, the bride's uh, uh, quarters from her home and march and go on this wedding procession to uh, the bridegroom's home with their torches lit. So it would uh, display this beauty, letting people know this wedding celebration is happening, this procession is coming. So the way we think about the wedding procession before a ceremony, this was a part of the festivities, the celebrations. 
And the Lord Jesus is telling this parable about his second coming. He says, he's the bridegroom coming back. He's going to return. And there's going to be, in this case, he says, five bridesmaids that await him wisely. Five bridesmaids that await him foolishly. They aren't prepared for his return. So there's a way to wait for the return of Christ and do that with wisdom, knowing you're getting ready for this wedding celebration. And then there's a way to foolishly do it, assuming he's not actually coming. So he continues in verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, Christ has told us repeatedly in these chapters, in our study of uh, chapter 24 and 25, that he will return at a day and hour no one knows. And so, therefore, there will be some people that respond foolishly to his returning. Because he's delayed, they're going to live foolishly until his delay. They're going to think, ah, he's not coming, or ah, I don't need to worry about the return of Christ. I'll just live any old kind of way. He's warned us that over and over throughout these chapters. And notice even in our text right here, the wise and the foolish all got tired and slept. So everybody goes to sleep because everybody's tired in this moment. So the groom is delayed for the procession and everybody's tired and everybody goes to sleep. So Christ's warning, as we will see, is not against resting, but against being unprepared while resting. Not knowing if you're right with God is not something to go to sleep not worrying about. There's a way to go to sleep and there's a way not to go to sleep. There's a way to rest and there's a way not to rest. It's not good. Christ would say, don't rest if you don't know if you're right with God. Like resolve that question even tonight, uh, even this morning, even right now. Not knowing if you're right with God is not something to put off until morning. And even tonight, I wonder when your head hits the pillow. This question, am I right with God? Will you pay attention to it and resolve it? Or will you just numb it by looking at your screen a little longer? That way you don't have to think about the most serious of questions. Christ continues in verse 6. But at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. The great moment arrives. It's almost time for the great wedding procession. It's like that moment where if you've ever been a groom or uh, uh, I mean a groomsman or a bridesmaid, when the wedding director lets you, no, 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 come get, get lined up. Get ready. It's time to go. So you know, uh-oh, it's, it's about game time. I'm going to walk out there. I don't want to trip. I don't want to fall. I don't want to make a fool of myself. I want to go stand up. I'm going to keep my knees bent so I don't fall down and faint. Like all those things are going through your head. Like it's game time. The ceremony's about to begin. The bridegroom shows up and, and the party begins to announce he's coming. We need to get ready. It's almost time to go and begin this procession. It's about time to go out and meet him. Verse 7, then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. So the, the, the lamps have been burning. They're out of oil. The flames uh, are going to go out on their torches. So they're not going to have lamps that are lit up for this procession. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answers them, truly, tr I say to you, I do not know you. So we have here the, the wise bridesmaids trim their lamps, put new oil on their lamps so that they would be lit during the procession. Lit like lights, not lit like lit. This also probably lit during the procession, but lit up. So, so they, they add the extra oil to make sure that's going to happen. The foolish ones don't have any extra oil and say, yo, let us get some. They're like, no, 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 Ours, our, our uh, lamps would go out. You must go get your own. 
And then the foolish bridesmaids show up late to the feast saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he says those terrifying words, truly, truly, I do not know you. And then Christ in verse 13 makes the point of the parable crystal clear. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So he's told this parable, this story, this illustration, we can understand to let you know, you don't know when I'm coming back. Therefore, don't rest until you know if you're right and ready for me to come back. You must be prepared because I may come at an hour you do not know, you do not expect. Friends, when Christ returns, you must be personally prepared to meet him. You will find no help in that day by looking to your mother and father. You will find no help before God on judgment day by saying my spouse was a Christian. You'll not be able to borrow the oil of faith from anyone else. You will stand before Christ and you will give an account for your life and you will be prepared or you will not be prepared. You will be wise or you will be foolish. Friends, you must cling to Christ for yourself. You must trust in the person and work of Christ for yourself to be ready for that day. Bishop J.C. Ryle says salvation is an individual business. Everyone who wishes to be saved must have private, personal dealings with Christ about his own salvation. So I ask you this morning, do you know him? Better yet, does he know you? We're not asking the question, do you know information about him? Plenty of demons know all kinds of information about Jesus of Nazareth. They're not saved. Demons believe intellectually he lived, died, buried, and resurrected. They're not saved. No, no. Do you have relationship with Christ? Have you put your faith and your trust in him? Are you casting all of your hope to be in glory with God on the person and work of Christ? Or are you trusting in something else? Do you know him? Are you prepared for his return? Or will you hear those terrifying words, I do not know you? Are you in relationship with God through Christ? Non-Christian friends here this morning, I have very, very good news for you. You can be prepared for that day on this day. You can go to bed tonight resting with peace that surpasses all knowledge and understanding, knowing should he return while I'm asleep, I'm good. Should the groom show up, I'm ready to be lit lit, like in all the ways. Should he return for me, my faith and trust is in him, in him alone. In this wedding ceremony, I will participate with the very bride of Christ because of the grace and mercy of Christ. And I even have good, for you, good news for you right now is you can enter into relationship with Christ right now through faith. Sitting in the chair you sit right now. You can understand God is holy. I am sinful. And Jesus Christ is my only hope to be reconciled to a holy God. You can turn from your sin. You can trust in Christ. You can do it in the seat you sit right now. You can do it in a conversation with a Christian friend that brought you after the service. You can do it laying in the bed tonight as you lay there thinking, rather than looking at your phone saying, Christ, I need you. I confess my sin to you. I ask you to forgive me. And he has grace and mercy to forgive and save even today. Because this coming judge has already come as a merciful Savior. He's lived the life that earned heaven for you in your place. He's died the death on Calvary's cross to pun uh, take the punishment you deserve for your sin. And he's resurrected on the third day, demonstrating victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. If you would look to him, you will be saved. The Apostle Paul, Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Non-Christian friend, look to Christ even now. We must live ready at all times, for we do not know when he's coming. 
Today is the day to obey Christ, for you do not know if tomorrow is coming. Christians here today, what obedience is God calling you to that you've been putting off? If he were to interrupt this sermon right now by returning, what sins do you wish you would have confessed and repented of? From eternal future, looking back on this moment, what sins are you hiding that you need to come out of? Christian, come out of hiding. Ask for help. Those who are being unfaithful to a spouse, confess your sin and ask for help. Those who are addicted and looking at pornography, those who are turning to gambling, those who are turning to drugs, like whatever you're running to, come out, return to Christ. Judgment day really is coming. And you ought to live this day in light of that day. And if Christ has set you free and saved you, you have no punishment to fear. He has already taken the punishment. So you're free to confess your sin and to ask for help to fight your sin and to put it to death. What does it look like to live this day prepared for that day? Eternity awaits us all. Is your faith in Christ and Christ alone? If not, repent and rest. Turn and trust. Rest in the Savior's power even as we sing. Are you prepared for that day? Second question. Are you leveraging your entire life in light of that day? Are you leveraging your entire life in light of that day? The second penetrating parable demands we hold nothing back as we live in light of his return. As Christians, we ought to live with a sense of urgency and expectancy. Friends, life matters. Don't waste it. You get one shot at this life. Like you're not going to get a do-over at your whole life again. No, no. One shot at this life. Therefore, don't waste it. Live this life to the full, understanding this day in light of that day and the life he's given to you is the life he's given to you to live unto his glory. You should live your entire life in light of eternal life. Your whole life, like not categories, not like, okay, you can have my Sundays and my, no, 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 all of it. He's king of all of it. He's savior of all of it. He's good in all of it. He's with you in all of it. Therefore, all of it is to be leveraged for his purposes. Live now as you wish you would, as you look back from eternity then. Jesus says in verse 14, for be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, another two, another one, to each according to his ability, ability, and then he went away. So man goes on a journey and entrusts his property to three different servants based on their ability to steward the resources he's given to them. Now, a talent uh, is not the same talent we're thinking about. A talent was a large sum of money. All right? So he gives five large sums of money to one, two to another, one to another. But each one was giving substantial resources to steward in light of the fact that the master had gone away and he's going to come back later. So he said, no, I entrust this to you. Go put it to work. I'm giving to this to you. Go put it to work upon my return. The same is true for you. He's given you the exact number of talents and opportunities and resources and relationships that you need to accomplish the purpose he has for you. Your life is the life he's given to you. The resources you have are the resources uh, that he's given to you. The relationships you have, the talents you have, the strengths you have, the weaknesses you have. These are things he's given to you to steward in light of his return. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Verse 16, who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So notice there's three different responses or 
uh, two different responses. The first two are similar. The, the second is different. Right? So the, the master gives and entrusts his property to the, the first two servants. They both go produce 100% gain. They were given five. They produce another five. Given two, produce another two. But then there's a different response with this third servant. The one who had only received the one talent buried it in the ground and hid it. Now, back in the day, they didn't have banks necessarily. You could invest it with uh, even pagan bankers that would uh, trade and money and, and give uh, interest and resources. But one of the best ways to hide that which was valuable was to bury it. So it's not silly that he buried it. That's, that's how you would keep something safe. One of the easiest ways to keep something of notable value safe. So this, this servant dug a hole, hid the one talent in the ground. He didn't have any entrepreneurial industrial gumption that the first two had. Instead, he just hid it. He didn't use what God gave him. He just hid it. He didn't use the resources God entrusted to him. He just hid them. Verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made ta two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, I want you to notice something. The number of talents produced did not solicit a different response from the master. He gives the same joyful commenda uh, commendation to both servants. I gave you five, you made five more. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You've been faithful a little, I'll give you much. The two talents, uh, you've made two more. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful a little, I will trust you too much. Enter into the joy. Same commendation to both servants. So it's not the amount they're producing, but their faithfulness that, that, that he's saying, no, no, well done, good and faithful servant. He's commending their character and their faithfulness, not the amount they produced. You worked hard with integrity. Well done. You stewarded little well, faithfully. You worked hard, faithfully, what I gave to you. Therefore, I will entrust more to you as a result. The master is pleased with faithful stewardship over what he's given to each servant. He determines faithfulness based on what he's given to you. <laughs> One commentator says the return expected was in proportion to the sum entrusted. So it, at Judgment Day, we're understanding even here, we'll get here in just a minute. But no, no, you will be evaluated based on what you were given, not what was given to somebody else. Not based on what you weren't given. You will be evaluated based on your faithfulness to labor faithfully, to work hard with integrity with that which he gave to you. And notice he promised the same reward to both of them. You've been faithful over a little, I'll give you more to be faithful over and enter into the joy of your master. So he would entrust them with more work in the joy of his presence. This is the reward of faithfulness. More work in his, the joy of his presence. Again, Leon Morris says the faithful servant will be rewarded with a position that will give him more scope for the use of the abilities he has shown he possesses. Once again, Jesus is teaching that the reward for good work is the opportunity of doing further work. And then again, that ultimate reward, enter into the joy of your master. The ultimate reward for serving faithfully is the joy of God himself. God, I'm doing what you built me to do. 
God, I'm laboring faithfully with that which you've given me to labor faithfully with. And you continue to entrust and I experience your joy and pleasure as I do that which you built me to do. But in contrast, look at his interaction with the third servant. He also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. This third servant basically said, look, I knew you were a mean dude and a good businessman. I didn't want to take any risk of losing your stuff. I hid it. Here it is. Take your stuff back. So he, he, he gives this kind of like wrong understanding of God's character. Like you're a mean businessman. So one, that's an error. So he says, and I was scared of you, so I hid it. Here, take what's yours. No chance he'd lose it, but no chance he'd gain anything from it. He just wanted to break even to avoid punishment. How many people live this life thinking, I just want to break even to avoid God's punishment? He labored not to be punished rather than laboring for the joy of the master. He misjudged both the master's gracious and just character. And this is what the master says, verse 26, but his master answered him, answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've scattered no seed. Oh, really? Like, you really know this and think this about me? Even if that was true, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So at once in, in this parable, what Jesus is doing is highlighting, uh-uh, afraid? How about disinterested and lazy? How about uninterested in what I actually want from you? Just trying to get away from me and do the minimum to, to break relationship with me. You have no interest in my interest. You're wicked and lazy. And his whole point is if you, were, if you actually were afraid of me and actually thought I was a wicked businessman, you would at least invest it with the pagan bankers and give me a little bit of interest with it. So I'm not even buying that excuse. <laughs> Because if you thought I was mean, you would think I was just. At least, even if you got that, the meanness part right, you would get the justice part right. You would at least do something. No, you did nothing. If you were afraid, wouldn't you fear my just anger at your lack of effort? No, he was disinterested and lazy. And acting afraid to do anything wrong, he was unwilling to do anything at all. Because again, even minimum effort would have gotten interest. And so we read verse 28. So take the talent from him, give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is how Christ talks about hell. So apparently the master lets the servant who turned the five talents into ten keep all ten to invest further. The reward for faithfulness is more work. And then takes the one from the lazy, wicked servant, gives that to the one with 10 so that he now has 11 to go put it to work. The faithless servant was sent to judgment and his one talent given to the one again with 10. And we need to feel the weight of this. This wicked servant cast into that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this parable, he wasn't sexually immoral. He wasn't a thief. He wasn't a murderer. He wasn't a terrorist. No, he neglected the resources God had given him. Rather than trusting, he had a gracious and just master. He lived in supposed fear of a shady God who wasn't even worth minimal effort to please. Friends, our entire life is to be a stewardship unto the God we will meet in glory. 
and he's not some wicked taskmaster who's not good and gracious and kind, and also who's not just. <laughs> no, he's both of those things. And we've seen that in the gospel over and over and over, but he's entrusted to us the lives he's given to us to steward unto his glory and for his purposes. Friend, he's given you the exact opportunities, the exact relationships, the exact money, the exact strengths and weaknesses, the exact gifts and talents to accomplish what he's called you to accomplish for his pleasure. And it doesn't matter if you have two or five or one talent. It doesn't matter how many talents he's given to the person next to you, in front of you, or behind you. That's the master's prerogative, not yours and not mine. It's up to him what he gives to us to steward. What matters is if we're investing all that he's given to us unto his purposes. That's what he's evaluating. Not if you have five or two or one. He's evaluating how are you using what he's given you to for his purposes. This is what matters. Paul in Romans chapter 12 says very clearly in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Every gift you have is according to the grace given to you in Christ. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Friends, the question we should be asking yourself is not how many talents has he given me, but how am I leveraging all that he's given me? Not which kind of person. That's not, you've missed the whole point of the parable if you're saying which talent am I. <laughs> Miss the whole point. You will face him and account for how you leverage whatever he's given to you. That's the point of the parable. Are you maximizing the resources he has given you for the kingdom of God? He's not going to judge you based on what he gave to someone else. He's going to evaluate how you use what he gave to you. He's not going to judge you based on what you think he should have given to you. He's going to evaluate based on what he did give to you. So what does this mean? We need to be honest about what he's given to us and then use it to the best of our ability with integrity. So, Lord, whatever you've given to me, I want to leverage for your namesake. So whatever gifts I have, whatever relationships I have, whatever opportunities and experiences I have, whatever I can do for the sake of your name, I want to, I want to use those things. And that's got to be the question that we think about. No, because that day is coming and eternity is a whole lot longer than this little life here and now, I want to live this life here and now in light of that life, and I want to use everything he's given to me for that life. I want to think about life in light of eternity. And friends, even in this room, he's not called everyone in here to be a missionary to an unreached people group. He's not called everyone in here to be a teacher and administrator at a school. He's not called everyone in this room to be a mechanic or an officer or stay-at-home mom or a counselor or a student. He's not called everyone in this room to be married or to be parents. He's not called everyone in this room to be a pastor. He's not called everyone in this room to be a nurse or a lawyer or a campus minister or a church planter or a student or a postal worker or a salesman or a dentist or a homeschool educator or a florist or a truck driver or a coach or a doctor or an artist or a scientist or a realtor. But he's called plenty of you to those things. Are you leveraging them for his namesake? Not looking at what he's not called you to or what you're avoiding, but what, everything that he's called you to, are you leveraging it for his purposes? And as Christians... He's called all of us to Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As a Christian, living in light of eternity means you desire to do as much as you possibly can to use all that he's given you for the sake of his pleasure. Like, listen, we believe in grace. We're not saved by works. None of this is about being saved by works. All of this is we're saved by grace. And once we're saved by grace, how do we use the grace he's given to us? 
But it's right to want to please God. Like grace is not contrary to pleasing God. You ought to want to please God with your entire life. Every single category. Lord, you've given me this grace. You've entrusted to this to me. I didn't earn any of it. All of my life is a grace. How do I use it to, to bring you glory and to advance your kingdom? That's what this parable teaches. As again, R.T. France notes, this parable suggests what readiness must be. It's not to be in passive waiting, but in getting with the job and making the most of the opportunities entrusted to us. God does expect and reward creative use of the opportunities for service which are open to us. If we mistakenly view God as a hard taskmaster, it will be hard for us to respond to him in a loving and open way. We are to use his gifts responsibly, but also adventurously. That is the way to be ready for the parousia or the second coming of Christ. So I want to spend the rest of our time just thinking, what are the resources he's given you and how might you leverage them for great gain in the kingdom of God? Just a few. One, your relationship with God. If you're in Christ, you have a relationship with God. You must steward that. Growing in that grace and your experience of him and receiving his love and his mercy, but also thinking, man, Lord, you've given me a relationship with you. How might I steward this relationship by blessing other people out of the relationship I have with you? Like if you're following God in Christ and you're benefiting from your relationship with him, you ought to be helping someone else. <laughs> like it's just what Christians do. Like you can't, like Jesus says, if you follow me, you become fishers of men. No, no, to follow Christ is to help other people follow Christ. If you're not helping other people follow Christ, you should ask, am I even following Christ? Because this is what he does. He says, no, no, follow me and help other people follow me. So think about stewarding your relationship with God, but also your relationship with other people. Think about your family members. Think about your friends. How are you being a light to them? How are you being an encouragement to them? How are you showing mercy to them? How are you showing grace to them? How are you forgiving them? How are your relationships with other people a stewardship of the grace of God in Christ? How are you demonstrating? No, he saved me. And so when other people sin against me, I respond differently than those who hasn't been saved by him. Actually forgive. How you steward your relationship with God. You steward your relationship with others. What about the experiences? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 that often we go through suffering that we might comfort other people when they're in suffering. Are you stewarding the suffering you've been through by using that to minister and help other people in the midst of their suffering? What about financial material? gifts that God has given to you? Are you being faithful and generous to get the gospel to the ends of the earth to serve this church? Are you taking your time and saying, you know what, if King's Cross needs more help with the little ones because they got a bazillion little ones and we always need more help, then I'm willing to serve. <laughs> are you saying, how can I help the college students or do student ministry or, or, or jump out and, and help in our ministry to the poor and to the homeless and to the hungry and to those who are suffering? Like, are you saying, no, no, I just want to serve. I want to labor and serve with my church to make the gospel known hospitality. If you have a home, are you stewarding it for the glory of God by inviting people into it? God is calling some of you to give more than you're giving. Some of you are indeed five talent people. Some are indeed two talent people. Some are one talent people. No matter which one those can be, some of you are holding back and God is calling you to give more for the sake of his kingdom. To not categorize your life and say, God, you can use this, but not that. All of it is his. All of it is stewardship. All of it will be evaluated. All of it is to be used for his kingdom. I want to warn you about three enemies that I think will snatch away your stewardship of leveraging your entire life for his purposes. Three enemies I think you need to be careful of when you think about, am I leveraging my whole life for his purposes? Enemy number one is selfishness. Just think about that. The last servant found no pleasure in the master's pleasure. 
He just wanted to give the master stuff back and avoid relationship. So if you don't see all of your time and talents and treasures, opportunities to please God as he's entrusted them to you, then you will see all of the resources he's given you as an opportunity to please yourself. So you will think all of my time, all of my talents, all of my treasures are all for me and pleasing me. Selfishness will kill you in your stewardship before God. No, no, no. Christ has given you those things. Literally, what's the antidote? What's the solution for selfishness? Self-forgetfulness. Not self-abasement. Not like, oh, I'm the worst human on the planet. Oh, you're a lot more sinful than you think you are. But his grace is a lot better anyway, and we'll get there. But, but self-abasement is not the issue. No, no, no. Like self-forgetfulness. Like stop thinking about you. God, how can I use these gifts for your glory and others' good? Like forget about you in the process. And the great irony in the whole thing is that's what will bring you joy. Christ says this is how he's designed us. If you, if you try to gain your life, you'll lose it. Try to lose your life, you'll gain it. If you focus on the glory of God and serving others, you will find the joy you want. If you focus on serving yourself, you'll never find the joy you want. Selfishness will destroy your stewardship before God. Your time is not your time. Your money's not your money. Your job is not your job. Your relationships are not your, they all belong to God. Serve God in them. And in it, you will find such rich joy and happiness and delight in God. Second thief that can rob stewardship, that means to destroy you even on that day, is comparison. Comparison. Imagine if the two-talent person in the parable would have looked at the five-talent person in the parable in frustration and not invested the two he had, but instead tried to invest the three he didn't have. So I don't know if you know much about money, but if you invest money that doesn't exist, you don't get any return on it. <laughs> like if you invest money that's not there, it, you get no return. So imagine if the two-talent person is like, ah, oh, God, I wish I had those three you didn't give to me, but you gave to that person. I'm going to try to use those three as if you did give them. There's no return on that investment. Nothing is coming out of that. That comparison itself is now ruining your stewardship of the very two that he has given. You cannot invest that which God has not entrusted to you. You can only invest that which he has entrusted to you. So again, don't be looking at the gifts he's given to other people and thinking, I wish I had those gifts. You know, it's, it can be ironic. We've all seen it. We've probably all done it in different categories. But when you try to exercise gifts you don't actually have, it doesn't result in fruitfulness in the kingdom. It's usually obvious to everyone around you, you're not good at this. Which means, <laughs> I'm just keeping it real. Y'all have seen it. <laughs> but this means... You've, you're trying to use a gift he hasn't given to you. It's not for his service. It's not for their service. Who's it for? It's for you. So you're saying, God, I want to use this gift, and I want to use these people to serve me. It's not how this works. You've given me gifts to serve God and serve people. So if I start comparing and trying to figure out gifts I don't have and then trying to use gifts I don't have, it doesn't serve God. It doesn't bless other people. And ultimately, it doesn't bring you, again, the joy. So comparison can't kill you. The solution to that comparison is celebrate what he gave to others and use what he gave to you. But celebrate it. You see a brother or sister using gifts God has given to them for the glory of God and the good. Celebrate it. Like in the church, Christians must have a team mindset. Like, look, I got to play my position. You got to play your position. But if everybody plays their own position the best they possibly can, the team performs well and it's beautiful. And look, we're not about giving glory to any one position. We're giving glory to God. He gave all the positions to begin with. 
So no, no, I want to be a team player. It's like, no, no, if I see you, oh, brother, sister, I'm so encouraged by your generosity and your giving, your kindness. I'm so encouraged by your hospitality. I'm so encouraged by your teaching. I'm so encouraged by how you serve with a joyful heart. I'm so encouraged by how you get people in their seats. I'm so encouraged by what I see. Like, I just encourage, like, celebrate. If you celebrate other people's gifts, I promise you'll stop comparing. Just use yours, celebrate theirs. Comparison begins to die. Third enemy of stewardship is the fear of failure. A fear of failure, again, a misunderstanding of God, the God we serve can lead to a paralyzing fear of failure. Now, I think this servant, uh, in, in the best I can tell and interpret, he seemed to be using it as a cover for his lazy wickedness. But it is true. If you think God is a mean taskmaster and you're afraid, uh, 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 you will be afraid to take risks because you fear punishment. But Christian, if you're in Christ... There's no punishment left for you. Christ has drank it all down to the last drop. God literally has no punishment left to give you. It's all been poured out on Christ. Even if he disciplines you, he does so out of love as a father for your good that you might use these gifts the way he wants you to use them. So there's no reason to, to be afraid to fail. No, no, no. Not only that, we have a king who's victorious over sin, over Satan and over death. He literally said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. We literally can't lose. Therefore, we can't take risks because we don't have to fear failure. He's already won. <laughs> victories behind us and victories in front of us. Therefore, we can take, we don't have to fear failure because we know his grace is the one sustaining and holding all things together by the word of his power. Therefore, we don't have to fear failure. We don't have a wicked taskmaster who's going to punish us in the end. He's poured out his wrath that he might now get us to glory. I want you to think about this. What kind of father would I be if my kids were trying their best to obey me and please me and I didn't help them in that? Like if my children are trying to please me, I want to make that easier for them, not harder. <laughs> like if they're making a little bit of an error and it's like, oh, they think that's obedience, but it's not really obedience. I help them to the obedience. I don't punish it. I don't say, oh, I ain't helping you. No, they're seeking to please me. If you're following God and he's a perfect father and you're in Christ, the father wants you to obey him. If you're seeking to obey him, you don't have to worry about failing because he's sovereign enough to fix it even if you do. So this is like understanding who he is. We don't have to fear failure. Therefore, we're willing to take risks for his great glory. As William Carey, the great missionary said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Because we can't lose. So expect him to do great things and try to do great things. Trusting him. Or as J.C. Ryle said, I love this. Do something today by God's help to make heaven more full and hell more empty. Talk to his bishop. Let's do it. <laughs> like take great risks because there is no need to fear failure. King's Cross, I want to make a couple corporate applications as we wrap up. We have applications to make of this text even to our church. He's given us much to steward. We've recently witnessed people saved out of Muslim backgrounds saved out of bouncing from orphanage to orphanage. He's given our church so many male and female leaders uh, to equip for works of ministry. The best we can tell, our church is pregnant with at least three church plants that we would want to send out uh, uh, in, in the next three or four years. There are testimonies that are happening weekly of people saying, I came to church for the first time in over 20 years because I saw out of the garden how you were ministering and, and showing kindness to people with food insecurity, and it made me want to come here. It's like we're displaying good deeds that commend our good news. 
people uh, letting us know in visitor cards. I came to your church because I was, I was invited by a friend and also was watching your sermons while I was incarcerated. And we're out of room. And we anticipate being more out of room in the next couple of weeks. So we've got to ask the question, what does it look like to leverage it all for the kingdom? So members, I would just ask you, if you can be here tonight, we need you to be at the Faith Family Meeting tonight. We moved it up to 5 o'clock uh, to help uh, families with little ones. We have to take some massive leaps of faith that we believe the Lord is calling us as a body in order to make Christ known, as in, in order to steward the resources he's given to us. Visitors, we hope to have announcements to you early this week through our socials and even as we gather next week on how we can make more room for what God is doing. So in conclusion, maybe you need to confess you have resources he's given you that you're not leveraging for the sake of his great glory and the advancement of the gospel. Maybe God is calling you to something greater than you imagine. You've been pushing him off, and today is the day to respond. Maybe you're not prepared to meet him on that day. You need to put your faith and tr trust in Christ this day. No matter where you are specifically, all of us need to trust in the perfect servant who leveraged everything, even into the point of death on the cross. The infinitely talented one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. May a right understanding of the end lead to faithfulness in the present. And may we keep our eye on that day when we'll see that great reward which Christ earned for us that makes us free to leverage it all and hear, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's close in prayer.